What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, Wall Street is starting to worry about Washington. Is D.C. drama over the debt ceiling and especially taxes the thing that could derail this otherwise unstoppable rally? We're going to look at how high earners are already shifting their money around. And it's been a record year for companies going public, but the results haven't been that great. Even if you're not a SPAC, we're going to look at why and the fallout. Plus, the government tries to fight ransomware hackers by reportedly cutting off their crypto. Will it work or will the criminals always be one step ahead? But we begin with the markets this hour. Dom Chu here with a look at the numbers. It's a critical point in the markets, and I'm going to show you why in just a second, Kelly. First of all, we are seeing modest losses across the major indexes. The Dow Industrial is off by about one-third of 1%, just about 127 points to the downside there. The S&P 44.45 or thereabouts, 30-point drop. That's about two-thirds of 1% decline. And the Nasdaq off about three-quarters of 1%, 115 points, 15,066 the last trade there. I mentioned this is a possibly critical point for the overall market. Let me show you a chart of the S&P 500 because some traders are watching a key level right now. It's right about where we're at. It's the 50-day average price on a rolling basis for the S&P 500. That's that magenta kind of purple line that you're seeing there. For the better part of the last year, you can see we've kind of bounced in certain areas every time we've gotten close to this moving average, this 50-day, so to speak, a number of times, and we're there again right now. So if you watch what's happening here, this has been an area again where markets have bounced when they've hit this zone. We'll see if that holds this time or whether or not a drop below leads to more losses down the line. That's something to keep a close eye on. And then the stock of the day. On the positive side of things, a record high for shares of Thermo Fisher Scientific, ticker TMO, up 8% right now. We get to put a star here, up 30% on a year-to-day basis. Why is that spike happening? This company is a maker of medical equipment and diagnostic tests. It's most famous these days for making COVID-19 tests. Well, they just had its investor day today. The company came out with full-year guidance, earnings, and revenues that topped analyst consensus assessments that's driving the stock higher, even though, Kelly, the company expects a severe drop-off in testing revenue next year in 2022. They're still going to do really well projections-wise. And by the way, Kelly, just a big number for you. Thermo Fisher Scientific to date has enabled $650 million. COVID-19 PCR test. That's a big number. Back over to you. It certainly is. Dom, thank you very much, and I'll see you again soon. Now, while some investors are worried about inflation or tapering or economic growth, there's a very big growing number of market participants that are starting to worry about taxes. For months, it was all talk, but now we've seen the actual numbers. The top rate for corporations, 26.5%. For individuals, almost 40%. There's a lot else in there as well. So how are people reacting What are the strategies that we should be using and how much of a concern is all of this for some investors? Joining me now is Emily Rubin, financial advisor at UBS Global Wealth Management. Emily, it's good to have you. And this is one of those times when market strategy sort of dovetails or has a more important than normal emphasis uh, with tax strategy, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, the House bill last week uh, came out and was actually a bit more moderate than the White House proposal. So the market was able to take it in stride. But there are going to be a lot of changes and we're going to be watching them closely. Uh, anything that increases taxes uh, to an extreme amount or new things that might come out in there could definitely impact the markets. But last this week, I think it was a sigh of relief. Our ultra high net worth clients were expecting the increase in income taxes and the capital gains rate that they put in there is actually a little lower than expected. Our entrepreneur clients are particularly concerned about changes to qualified small business stock uh, and grantor trust because a lot of them are impacted by that. So there's still a lot to come on this, but uh, we'll be watching very closely. One more question on this. What kind of strategies become important if you have these kinds of concerns about policy? You know, do is it stuff that people do? I'm thinking, for example, about high earners. You, you see all this talk about deferring income, all of these. And the reason why I ask is, you know, it goes back to the net effect of all of these from a macro perspective. You know, how much revenue is this really going to raise? Absolutely. And there definitely were some strategies that we could have done with capital gains. So the bill has in it that the capital gains rate increase will, as now anyway, increase as of the date it was introduced. So it's too late for those strategies. But certainly for people who have lumpy income or income they could pull forward, uh, it's definitely something that they should be thinking about, uh, you know, before the end of this year. And so how what would that affect markets then? If people are going to pull income forward, what would that mean for stocks? You know, I really actually don't think it's going to have much impact on stocks. Uh, that is, you know, if there were big changes to capital gains rates, I was concerned uh you know, if it was starting next year, that there would be a, a lot of sales and that could have impacted the market. But the investors that are uh, impacted by the ultra high net worth investors who are impacted by this don't actually represent a huge percentage of the U.S. retail market. I believe mm -hmm. it's only 25 percent. So any changes that they're making really doesn't have a huge impact on on uh, the overall market. Yeah, it'd be sort of interesting to think through, would that be a big source of selling pressure? And if so, if they're selling not for fundamental reasons, but for tax reasons, then is that an opportunity for buyers and so forth? So let me turn to the markets more tactically. I know you guys like value, financials, energy, Japan, which we didn't have time to get into it yesterday. But one of our guests, I, I wish I could remember which one, was saying, you know, avoid, don't get involved with Japan. People always try to talk about how now is the time, now is the time, He's the, but they've been destroying capital fears. But let's put that all aside and talk about some of the U.S. sectors that you do like, like uh, energy, which has seen such a run, uh, you know, maybe for the worse, uh, for people on the other side of that financials value. It sounds like you think rates are going up, economy, you know, growth is going to continue and so forth. Yes, uh, we, you know, we aren't concerned about uh, a growth slowdown. Uh, we, we think it might have peaked, but we don't think that means a slowdown is imminent. Uh, so when we look at the economy and, uh, you know, it, the reopening has certainly gotten delayed by the Delta variant and has pushed off that reopening re reflation trade. So I know we've been saying this for a while, but we do think that that is still the area to put your money in for going forward into year end. And that means the cyclical trade, which is energy, financials, industrials. Energy and financials have been behind the S&P by 53 and 15, uh, 13%, actually, I think, since the end of 2020. There's still a lot of room to catch up. And they're the, the companies that are going to do better in a high, high, still high growth, higher inflation, higher yielding environment. All right. Emily, thanks for your time today. It's good to have you here.
Thank you so much. Emily Rubin with UBS Global Wealth Management. Now, sticking with market moves, several Fed presidents are facing scrutiny after disclosing a number of large investments in stock trades over the past year. Steve Leisman is here with those details and the fallout. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Amid an outcry about Fed officials owning and trading individual securities, an in-depth look by CNBC at Fed officials' own financial disclosures finds three who last year held assets of the same type the Fed itself was buying. Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren held several hundred thousand dollars worth of real estate investment trusts that owned mortgage-backed securities. He made 37 separate trades during 2020. The Fed last year purchased almost $700 billion in MBS. Rosengren announced last week he would sell these positions and stop trading while President Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan, he actively traded millions of dollars of individual stocks. He said he would take the same action as Rosengren. A spokesperson for Rosengren telling CNBC that he, quote, made sure his personal savings and investment transactions complied with what was permissible under Fed ethics rules. Fed Chair Jay Powell held between one and a quarter and two and a half million of muni bonds. The bonds were purchased no later than 2019 and are just a small part of his overall portfolio. They were held, however, while the Fed last year bought $21 billion in munis. A Fed spokesperson telling CNBC that Powell had no say over the Fed's individual bond purchases and no say over the investments in his family's trust. A Fed ethics officer determined that these holdings did not violate Fed ethics rules. Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin, he held 1.3 to 3 million individual corporate bonds purchased prior to 2020. He held these bonds while the Fed last year bought 46.5 billion of corporate bonds. Barkin declined to comment. He had no say, however, over individual bond purchases by the Fed. These holdings or, or, or trades do not appear to be barred by Fed ethics rules, but they raise the question. Should those rules have banned officials from holding or trading the same assets the Fed bought after it widened those types of assets it would purchase in response to the pandemic. The Fed's own code of ethics says, code of conduct says, officials should be, quote, careful to avoid any dealings or other conduct that might convey even an appearance of conflict between their personal interests, the interests of the system, and the public interest, Kelly. Which is a pretty broad statement. So were the actions against the rules or not? They don't appear to be against the rules or at least the letter of the law, but Dennis Kelleher, CEO of the nonprofit Better Markets, tells CNBC that if such Fed actions are not against the rules, well, the rules ought to change. Quote, to think that such trading is acceptable because it's supposedly allowed by the Fed's current policies only highlights that the Fed's policies are woefully deficient. And as you know, Kelly, in response to CNBC questions, a Fed spokesperson released a statement yesterday saying Fed Chair Jay Powell ordered a review last week of the Fed's rules surrounding, quote, permissible financial holdings by senior Fed officials. I have about 19 questions, Steve, so I'll, I'll rattle off a few of them, kind of get it this direction. Like, number one, has this always been the case that Fed officials uh, held a lot of securities while they were... Uh, you know, while they were in their positions. Number two, were most of these positions or all of them taken before these people uh, became Fed officials? It sounds like they obviously were not, although a lot of them may have been made before the pandemic. But still, number three, is there any limit to how much trading they can do or the kinds of, you know, is there 30 day rules or or something like that? And number four, I guess the most broad observation here is based on their own code of conduct statement, Anything that would give the appearance of a conflict of interest, this would certainly fall into that category. How could it not? Yeah, I mean, I'll let you make that judgment and others as well as to number four. Uh, as to number three, I believe, uh, I, I'm not sure uh, 
I think the issue here, the broader issue, Kelly, I'll just try to take all three with this one comment, which is that the Fed dramatically changed the assets that it purchased last year. What happened is that they didn't change their ethics rules to account for this. It seems more like one of omission rather than commission. In the case of Powell and Barkin, they both previously owned those shares, did not buy any additional during the year. In the case of Rosengren, he bought it all through the year, and his ethics officer, I guess, signed off on all this. You can see that there is a blacked-out signature on his disclosure form, so he did not believe he was breaking at least the letter of the ethics rules. Subsequently, however, well, what do they think? Well, Kaplan and Rosengren both said, hey, we shouldn't be doing this, so perhaps they're now acknowledging they shouldn't have done it to begin with. All right, Steve, thank you. Good to have that report today. Steve Leisman with the very latest on the Fed front. Coming up, rising rates are having a big impact on the housing and mortgage market. We're going to look at the threat to home prices if there is one, the fallout from the eviction ban, and the long-term risks to the real estate market. Plus, Vietnam is the world's third largest producer of textiles and garments, but with growing concerns about COVID's impact on manufacturing there, where else could companies go if they're trying to go beyond Vietnam? We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The housing market's been on a tear since the pandemic, with people relocating and looking for bigger properties, and prices have soared as a result. Zillow just today is saying prices are up nearly 18% year-on-year, in line with other recent data points. And my next guest says home prices can keep rising. Joining me now is Matthew Poynton. He's senior property uh, economist at Capital Economics. Matthew, it's great to have you. Explain the fundamental basis for this. Uh, well, there's a number of reasons why I think house prices uh, can maintain uh, their current level. I think house price growth is definitely going to slow. I'm, uh, I'm also rolling out a, a, a house price crash. Uh, firstly, um, as rates start to rise, uh, most borrowers are protected. They've got long-term fixed rates. We had a refinancing boom over the last few months, and that means most people have locked in these record low mortgage rates. Uh, secondly, uh, mortgage lenders haven't responded uh, to house price booms by loosening uh, their credit standards like they did in the mid-2000s. In fact, they've done the opposite. You know, they've, uh, they've timed up. We've got credit scores going up. We've got DTIs, debt-to-income ratios coming down. And that really means that the current mortgage book is pretty safe. Um, so borrowers are well protected from, from any uh, increase in rates. Uh, another point is home equity has surged. You know, house prices, as you say, up 18% year-on-year, record gains. So most borrowers have a lot of home equity, and that means they've got a lot of skin in the game. They're going to want to keep up their mortgage payments uh, um, if they can. So that's another reason why we think that's going to rule out any sort of forbearance uh, surge. You don't see that on the horizon. And without the four sellers and these and this forbearance, uh, sorry, this um, foreclosures coming through, that really rules out a, a large fall in house prices. 
So I, I think for a lot of people, they would look at these headline numbers and go 18 percent price gains to just 3 percent price gain. You know, that wow, that's a huge slowdown. It's like, well, there, it means prices are still rising. You know, it's a little bit like the transitory inflation discussion, um, which is to say that even if inflation slows to 2 percent, you know, it's coming after a couple of chunk years. My point being, why don't you think home prices could outright decline? Because I don't think for an outright decline in prices, you normally need to see poor sellers. You need to see a lot of foreclosures uh, flooding the market with, with homes. Um, we don't see that on the horizon. And even if we did get some increase in foreclosures as the ban uh, expires, you know, the market is incredibly tight right now. There's not much supply in the market. Demand is still high. Um, and so any foreclosure is going to be snapped up. There's lots of uh, you know, demand out there to, to, to take up these houses if there's uh, more in the market. So they don't really see the uh you know the, the big increase in forced sellers that really causes uh, house prices to decline right and to put it differently if we start to see that for whatever reason that would be a much more worrisome sign or sign of a fundamental change from the market dynamics that we see now even with affordability uh you know declining uh, with this increase in prices matthew leave it there thanks for joining me today it's good to have you Matthew Poynton with Capital Economics. Coming up, the U.S. Treasury is cracking down on hackers who use cryptocurrencies to profit from ransomware attacks. We'll dig into how they plan to do that and if it could end up creating unwanted rules for the crypto world. Plus, should you sell stocks or property before the capital gains tax takes effect? Or is it already too late? We'll look at the race to sell as confusion grows over the tax timeline. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. About 50 points off the lows. The Dow's down 185 right now. That's half a percent. It's the outperformer, if you want to call it that. S&P's down eight-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ down almost one percent today. Uh, and here are some of the individual movers this hour. After posting its best week since December last week, Peloton has fallen every day this week and is now on track for its worst week since May. Uh, we're talking about a 40% decline from its all-time high in January. It's been struggling to find its footing. It's down 1.5% today, back to about 103 a share. Sticking with the stay-at-home theme, Zoom Video is actually the best-performing stock in the NASDAQ today after proxy firm ISS recommended against a vote uh, a vote against Zoom's yield to buy 5.9, setting growth concerns. It's actually having a positive impact on shares, which are up about 3%. ISS is saying the all-stock deal would expose 5.9 shareholders to a more volatile stock. And Zoom shares are still down about 20% since the deal was announced on July 18th, whereas 5.9 is only down about 2%. And finally, take a look at shares of Moderna, which are down but off their lows. The FDA holding a meeting this afternoon to decide whether to recommend booster shots. Analysts at Evercore releasing a note in just the last hour saying they don't believe the FDA will recommend the shots. Moderna is down 4.5% today, and that brings it to about a 7% drop this week. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The Biden administration is buying hundreds of millions more doses of the Pfizer vaccine for donations to countries around the world. The Washington Post says that an announcement is planned early next week to coincide with the U.S. General Assembly's annual meeting. 
At today's White House COVID briefing, officials say that the U.S. has plenty of doses available for boosters and is ready to start next week, if that's what regulators recommend. And on the news tonight, the latest from the FDA advisory panel that is meeting today to decide if a third Pfizer shot is safe and effective amid doubts that boosters are even needed right now. Apple says that customers are having trouble making iPhone 13 upgrade purchases with their Apple credit card. That offers 3% cash back on Apple products. Other cards are not affected. Pre-orders for the new model started today. And rescuers working together to save a baby killer whale that was stuck in shallow waters in eastern Russia. They think that it was hunting too close to shore at low tide. They spent hours pouring water on it to keep it alive until the tide rose enough that it could swim out to sea on its own. Certainly not something you see every day. Kelly, listen back to you. My son's favorite animal. He loves it in the black and white pages. That and the panda. Uh, Rahel Banks. Coming up, why 2021 has turned into a spectacular nightmare for the market. And it's not just facts. About half of this year's IPOs are now trading below their IPO price. Why? Were they mispriced? We'll discuss ahead on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. It's been a tough year for the IPO market. Totally different story than 2020. This year, about half of the IPOs are trading below their IPO price. Look at some of these high-profile ones. Didi, obviously, we know the story there. But Poshmark, only all among the underperformers, down more than 30% in the past three months. And this is two more big IPOs are on deck. Allbirds and Warby Parker are set to debut soon. So with the crop this year, was it poor pricing or poor fundamentals or just a different investor appetite? Let's bring in Gina Sanchez of Chantico Global. Uh, she's the CEO there and a CNBC contributor. She will be with me for the next couple of stories here with the Trader's Take. And Santosh Rao is head of research at Manhattan Venture Partners. It's great to have you both here. So Santosh, <laughs> let me begin with you. What is it? You know, it's not all SPACs problem because even regular IPOs aren't doing that well. Why? Yeah, uh- I think in, in comparison to last year's fourth quarter, uh, second half, you, you're going to have a muted uh, IPO market. Uh, we had blockbuster IPOs last year, so the comparison is going to be uh, not very great. But then uh, I think the investors have become very selective. Uh, they are, uh, I think the companies focused on data, uh, enterprise software, cloud and all that, the selected markets that are going to be around in the post-pandemic world uh, are doing well, will continue to do well. Uh, and the companies that are kind of struggling off the gate in terms of revenue growth and all that, they've been punished. Uh, so overall, I think uh, the valuations were high. Uh, they're getting more rational. So you will sell, so you'll see them settle down, uh, mm-hmm. just like you're seeing with Palantir. Uh, it'll settle down as the news flow comes in. You- you'll see them do well. But the fourth quarter is, uh, we'll have some good ones in the fourth quarter. Gina, okay, so would you, is it that SPACs spoiled things for everybody, Gina? Or is it that as the IPO market has been so strong, more and more companies coming to market, investors are getting more discerning? It's just interesting because, you know, is it, or were they just priced too high? I mean, what do you think's going on here? So I think it's a few things, Kelly. The first is that IPOs that went out last year were going out into a recovering market. They were going out into a weak market and into expectations for a recovery. We're now peaking. And so the expectations going forward are being revised down. So it's just going to be a challenge for IPOs. But if you look at IPO profitability, post-IPO profitability from from the great financial crisis to now, we've basically been on a ski slope. We peaked out at post-IPO profitability in 2009 as high as 80%. We're now down to 22% of 2020 IPOs that are 
profitable post-IPO. This is an all-time low, which is to say that investors have been looking for anything to invest in and have taken more and more risk and are getting less and less return in terms of profitability. And that's the biggest challenge right now is it was fine if you expected the, the markets to turn around and turn up, but now we're expecting downward revisions from here and they're not profitable. So I wonder, I guess, finally, Santosh, what would your advice to investors be? Is now actually the time to start looking at some of these names? You know, they've, we often see this uh, dip with a lot of companies, especially around their first earnings report. Or is it not time yet? Do some of these companies, like Gina said, if they're not profitable, do investors need to wait until they have a better, more clearer path to profitability? Yes, investors need to look at the companies very carefully. They need to have a good path forward. Uh, they need to have a good revenue uh, growth trajectory. Just having a large total addressable market is not going to do it. They need to execute right off the gate. And you're going to see a lot of them like Instacart and Databricks and others coming down the, uh, coming down the line. So I think there are some good ones down there. Uh, the fourth quarter is going to be muted compared to fourth quarter of last year. But there are definitely good, solid companies that are out there that will come out. All right, and we'll see if that turns things around. Santosh Rail of Manhattan Venture Partners, thank you. As I mentioned, Gina, stick around uh, because we want to stick with this theme. As the SPAC craze in the past year has come to a screeching halt, Goldman's pointing out that 93% of active SPACs are trading below their par values. Again, this feeding into some of the concern. Since the February peak, the CNBC SPAC 50 index is down nearly 20%. Are SPACs literally on their way out? Let's bring in our own Mike Santoli for some thoughts here as well. Mike, issuance of SPACs, however you want to call it. I mean, the numbers are plunging. Are they gone for good? I would doubt they're gone for good, Kelly, but there is a chance they go back to their prior status as being a little bit of a, of a niche uh, kind of boutique area of the offerings market for specific circumstances, particular sponsors, where it makes sense as kind of a better mousetrap structurally as opposed to this, you know, gold rush. I mean, this is the after the gold rush moment. Just too many deals, uh, indiscriminate capital being thrown at them. And then the performance after these SPACs found a merger partner has been really terrible. I actually think there's some, some long short hedge funds this year that have done little else on the short side except ride a lot of the post-merger SPACs down. Wow. Now, now what happens though, when, you, when they're trading below par and they're actually sort of in the money, you could redeem at some point in the future at $10 and they're trading below $10, then it once again becomes just kind of a boring uh, kind of hedge fund arbitrage thing. But one final point, there are just too many of these still looking for deals. I think there's three or four hundred of them that have wow. raised money. They need to find a deal within the next, you know, less than two years at this point. And so it's, it's just sort of a pig and a python problem. Three or four hundred is something, Gina, for investors to think about as these start coming to market. So what would you add? I mean, and obviously the SEC has started to crack down on this a little bit as well. Is that going to push these companies into the traditional IPO pipeline? Does it just mean that, you know, the ones who are still coming to market in the SPAC and the companies themselves who have done SPACs, Gina, I've heard from ones who regret it. And, you know, they, they got to be a little careful how they talk about it, you know, there's relationships with bankers and that kind of thing. But they're certainly not thrilled about this outcome. No, and quite frankly, the money that's already been raised into those SPACs, those SPACs actually have a ticking time limit in order to find that company, which is to say it feels like 2006, it feels like 1999, where there was too much money chasing too few opportunities. And I think there are going to be a lot of very bad investments. In, in terms of vintage year terms, I think this is going to be a terrible year to have invested in a SPAC because there's just too much money and too little opportunity. Mike, I'm going to ask you a direct prediction question. So 2020 was the year that IPOs did phenomenally. The Renaissance IPO index outperformed the market. It was the year for innovation and Kathy Wood's ARC fund and so forth. And this year has obviously been the opposite. What, what do you think 2022 looks like? 
Um, I think there's a decent chance. First of all, I think maybe the pace of deals will slow a little bit. Uh, and there's a decent chance that we have a more, quote, normal year, which is maybe the majority of IPOs work, but it's still not across the board a great sub-asset class. Throughout the long path of history, IPOs have actually not been great. One of the reasons people have defended the whole practice of pricing them a little bit low to get a pop is because it's risky to just across the board own new issues. So I think we're probably going back maybe to that norm. We did see a peak in the whole disruption. Let's just buy a piece of the five-year future type stocks back in February. The overall market has absorbed that really pretty well, mostly because the general cyclical move in the economy has been strong enough to, to offset some of that weakness. It's really well said. It's been a huge rotation uh, under the surface, under these seemingly calm waters. All right, Michael, thank you. We appreciate your time today, Mike Santoli. And finally, it's the expose that keeps getting worse for Facebook. The Wall Street Journal continuing to report on internal documents from the company detailing how Facebook is struggling to battle misinformation and mental health issues and the way both Facebook and Instagram are designed for users. Let's bring in our Julia Borst for more Julia. Well, what's been so interesting about this, Kelly, is that the revelations that the Wall Street Journal has reported over the course of the week in its series of exposés is that it's less a surprise what these these revelations are and more that Facebook knew about these things, that it had hard da data about just how negative Facebook could be, say, for teens, um, for teen girls in particular, about their body image, and that Facebook knew that and didn't take more dramatic action. So, Kelly, I think that's going to really be the question should Facebook have done more? And one thing I just have to point out is that Instagram chief Adam Mosseri, he came out in a podcast and he said that in a lot of ways, social media is like cars. People get into automobile accidents, but obviously there's still great value in cars. And I think he really dug himself a hole there, Kelly, because obviously the auto industry is highly regulated and it really raises some questions about what other types of regulation could be coming down the line for Facebook and Instagram. Gina, remind me if you're an investor in, in Facebook here, you know, across the social media complex, what would you do with the, with the names? Um, so uh, Lido Advisors is a, an investor in Facebook. However, it is actually not allowed in the ESG portfolio for this exact reason. Um, and, and, you know, this kind of comes down to the question is, will a company act ethically in the face of a, a profitability motive? And, and what we're finding out is no. Uh, they won't. Profits matter to them. And, and to, to Julia's point, there is a reason that regulation exists, um, which is to say that, that companies are trying to do what they can, um, but there needs to be regulation. And I think this talk about regulation is going to suppress the, the multiples for social media stocks going forward, um, because this topic of regulation is one that is equally shared on both sides of the aisle. Nobody likes uh, social media stocks right now. So, so there is, I think, this just adds more and more fuel to the fire to, to look at um, the various regulations starting from the, you know, the FTC regulations and on down. But at the same time, Gina, they are still the places to be in terms of ad flow, ad dollars, digital ad market. Is anything really going to change that? And if not, won't they continue to, to perform? Well, if, if all of a sudden uh, companies like Facebook or like, uh, you know, uh, Twitter um, become liable uh, for acting on this information, it is going to radically change uh, what they're going to be willing to do, who they're going to be willing to let on and keep off the platform, how big the platform can grow. This actually feeds directly into whether or not they're going to be profitable. Interesting. Uh, from that lens, that would be um, shocking if they had to suddenly be liable for that. Julie, I'll give you a final word. 
Well, Kelly, I think it's just going to be really interesting to see what Facebook does now. The company made the point that it was intentionally collecting this data so it could act on it, so it could understand what kind of content is negative for teens. But I think especially in this younger demographic, that's where they're facing increased scrutiny. And I think they're going to be under more pressure to act and put up more guardrails. It'll be very interesting to see, Kelly, whether or not they do go forward and launch Instagram for kids as planned. And if they do, which I think they probably will, how different Instagram for kids will look compared to the traditional app that we all use. Oh, yes, that is a great, great point. Julia Borston, Gina Sanchez, thank you both. We really, really appreciate it today. Coming up, Vietnam was once considered the savior for U.S. manufacturing abroad and alternative to producing in China. After the break, we'll look at why companies may be trying to look beyond Vietnam now to solve their supply woes. We're back in a moment. Many big companies with manufacturing facilities in China have moved those to Vietnam. But what was once seen as a haven has turned into more of a nightmare lately. CNBC's Lorianne Larocco joins me now to explain everything that's happening. It's great to have you here on set, by the way. Um, so we have a ton of huge companies, Lorianne. With many, we had a big warning about Nike this week. What's the backstory here? The backstory here is that it's going to get a heck of a lot worse. You've had a 109-day shutdown in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh. Yes, and it keeps on counting. The, the country essentially locked down that major manufacturing hub. And we're not going to know until the end of September if it's going to be back open again. That's shocking. More than 100 days, the entire place has been locked down. So that would explain why they're saying Nike's shortages could last into spring of next year. So this could really go on for a while. So... Things are, it's, they're having a hard time getting stuff out of Vietnam, but also into the U.S. The shipping prices that we've seen are through the roof. And so there's kind of two pieces to, of this problem. Exactly. So the, the suppliers, like, they're, they're really in a living hell. I mean, you know, you can't get your product. You can't have it made. You can't get it out. And you're paying through the nose. And, and you've got the delays. So it's really a conundrum right now. Tell me about Edison Wall. So Edison is a vessel that was carrying almost 500, contain, uh, almost 500 containers of, of Nike product. And it left uh, Vietnam back in uh, late August. And it arrived in, uh, on August 27th in the port of L.A. And it stayed there docked for 12 whole days. It was, it was anchored out in the middle of the ocean. And then finally it got into uh, the port of Los Angeles in early September. And uh, it took eight days for them to start, you know, unloading and doing their things. And it's been such a delay and everything's so congested there. The vessel finally left late last night. Oh, my God. So, yeah. And these are vessels that are containing the, the, the trade that we need, right? This is how companies make money. And then the final piece of it is they finally get through that whole process and they have to get it across the country. And what? Presumably rails or trucks. We know the issues with the trucking shortage there. Exactly. And it's only getting worse. I spoke with Gene Sirocco last night, who's the head of the Port of Los Angeles. And he told me last night that 30 percent of all uh, truck appointments are not being filled every day. Oh, my gosh. Every day. That's 30 percent of capacity that is not being moved out. And remember, trucks, rails, ships, if they're not moving, you're not making any money. And that's what investors need to know. Quick final question. If, if not in Vietnam because of this whole, thi this whole issue, are made in America, or do they, can they go even more far-flung if they're facing all these shipping problems? From some of the folks I've spoke with with Vietnam, they're delaying, like, moving more into the, to the country. You have seen some more folks going to Malaysia, Cambodia, India, but that's a whole set of problems because carriers are not going to a lot of those ports. So if you make your product there, if you can't get a ship to pick it up, 
it really doesn't matter. And then you've got the barrier, the cost barrier of entry here in the United States. We're just too expensive to make product. Well, it sounds like there are no solutions yeah. for right now. Certainly not easy ones. Lorianne, thank you uh, for explaining it to us, Lorianne LaRocco. Still ahead, the number of ransomware attacks continues to climb, but now the Treasury Department is stepping in to target hackers using crypto. We'll tell you what it could mean for more regulation in the crypto space generally. Remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. According to reports, the Biden administration is set to roll out steps curbing the use of cryptocurrency and ransomware payments. Eamon Javers is here with the details. Eamon? Kelly, the White House and the Treasury Department are now declining to comment on this Wall Street Journal report from earlier today. What the journal is reporting here is that the Biden administration, as early as next week, uh, is set to take an array of actions to crack down on cryptocurrency transactions involving ransomware and cyber attacks on American companies. Not at all clear necessarily what that array of actions will take uh, will include, but part of this, they say, will be sanctions on some of the entities involved. What they would need to do in order to be effective here, the journal reports, is to target crypto platforms that obscure transactions, those so-called crypto mixers, and also digital wallets that receive ransom payments. It's not entirely clear what the full panoply of options are that the Biden administration is considering, uh, but clearly the cryptocurrency transactions are a key part of the whole engine that runs this ransomware scam that we've seen over the past year or two really just cripple large portions of corporate America. So the Biden administration's thinking here, according to the Wall Street Journal, is what you need to do is go after the money. If you can block those payments, then maybe you can do something to disincentivize the ransomware itself and overall protect American companies. We'll see what the Biden administration comes up with. As I say, so far, uh, no comment from the White House or from the Treasury Department on the journal's reporting. All right, Eamon, stay right there. Let's bring in Lee Reiners. He's Duke Law School's Global Financial Markets Center Executive Director. Lee, it's great to have you. You know, you've been calling for literally going as far as to ban crypto in order to fight ransomware. What do you think of this approach? Well, I think this is a welcome development. It is long overdue. But let's not fool ourselves that this is going to solve the ransomware plague that has impacted so many small businesses and medium-sized businesses for the last several years in this country. You know, at the end of the day, Kelly, as long as there are crypto exchanges abroad, primarily in Russia and other Eastern European countries, that are willing to convert crypto to fiat currency, we are still going to have a financial incentive for these hackers to engage in ransomware attacks. Eamon, what would your response to that be? And it's interesting that this story broke today because I was thinking about how quiet it's been on the ransomware front lately. What does that tell you? Well, it has been quiet on the ransomware front. I've been talking to some experts on why that might be, and they think there might be a general cooling off in the wake of the colonial pipeline hack in which all of this just got too hot for the criminals. So there's some sense here that the criminals are lying low and waiting for the heat to blow over, and there might be some uh, effort here by the Russian government to crack down on some of this, uh, tell these, telling these criminals to go to ground for at least a time uh, and let some of the heat blow over here in terms of the international pressure. Uh, but look, Lee's point is a good one. The challenge that the Biden administration is going to face here is that most of the activity taking place is offshore, outside U.S. legal jurisdictions. So how do you deal with that? Well, you can impose sanctions, and that's something that we've seen uh, the U.S. Treasury Department do time and again uh, with sort of nefarious actors in other spheres of international relations going after those assets, trying to freeze them, trying to block their access to the international banking system overall. The U.S. has enormous sway over that. Uh, if they can inconvenience those people or freeze them out of the financial system altogether, they might be able to have some impact, but it's, but it's going to be tough and it's going to be indirect. 
Lee, would you acknowledge that it has been quiet on the ransomware front, especially I thought it was notable that Labor Day weekend passed without any major events after that had previously Memorial Day, other holidays had, had we had often seen something big go down. So is there something maybe going on behind the scenes or maybe these efforts, uh, these overt efforts are also working? Um, you know, and does that tell us that perhaps this kind of influence uh, can have a big impact? Yeah, I mean, I think it has been quiet, as, as Eamon alluded to. I think the backlash from the Colonial Pipeline hack, I mean, you know, that's dealing with critical infrastructure. So, of course, that's going to draw a lot of attention. You know, but I've called for, you know, a ban of cryptocurrency simply because the economic cost and national security costs, uh, you know, vastly outweigh whatever marginal benefits. And I'm not even sure, you know, what benefits uh, crypto provides other than uh, an ability to, to get rich quick. Um, you know, so I've heard from so many businesses, small businesses in this country that have been impacted by, you know, ransomware attacks. You know, they're the real silent majority here. You know, the most vocal proponents uh, in this space are people who have a vested interest. The folks who come on this network every day to pump cryptocurrency have skin in the game. Uh, so these are welcome developments. Uh, I certainly think that uh, Vladimir Putin is playing a role here. There needs to be international collaboration, though, at the end of the day. Uh, just like banking regulation is only as strong as its weakest link. The same is true for cryptocurrency. And so we need uh, countries like Russia, North Korea, and others to come to the table. And that doesn't appear likely anytime soon. Leah, so I'm guessing you don't own any crypto yourself. Well, you know, I teach about it. And so I try to, to know what I'm talking about. So I do own a little bit of crypto. But, you know, if it goes to zero, it's not going to, uh, you know, ruin my kid's college fund. Right. But uh, I guess for when you say that it has no value whatsoever, I wonder if we're starting to see some value overseas in fragile markets and economies. Maybe El Salvador. Who knows if Ukraine could be next? Obviously, you witness, uh, you know, places like Afghanistan where you know, the money transfer system doesn't exactly work. Uh, would that be a useful societal purpose? It's possible. I mean, it's too early to tell at this point, Kelly. I mean, certainly what we're hearing out of El Salvador is that it's been a very rough rollout. And keep in mind that, you know, El Salvador forfeited their monetary sovereignty, you know, over 20 years ago when they embraced the, the U.S. dollar. And right. it's still it's still um, um, legal tender in, in that country. So, yes, there are going to be pockets throughout the world where cryptocurrency, you know, is useful. But I still think from a U.S. standpoint, we know it's undermining our economic security. We know North Korea and Russia are using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. So is it worth it uh, is the question that, you know, if I were President Biden and Janet Yellen, that I'd be asking myself. Eamon, uh, a final word on this? You know, Kelly, what's so interesting here is what we might learn when the U.S. imposes sanctions, if they do, uh, is exactly how much U.S. intelligence knows about who's actually been doing all these transactions, right? We don't know exactly what uh, U.S. law enforcement and intelligence know here. But when they do sanctions, like, for example, on the Iranian regime, they often name the individual people by name who are taking part in the financial transactions and block their assets around the world. And they sometimes even name, you know, individual ships that have been violating trade policies with Iran, that sort of thing. So so uh, you might get a very full picture here when they do impose sanctions of who exactly the U.S. believes has been doing all this. And they might actually put their names in a public document, which would be fascinating to read. Absolutely. Guys, thank you both uh, for talking us through this today. Eamon Javers and Lee Reiners on the future of ransomware and crypto. Changes to the tax code are coming, an increase in capital gains rate likely among them, but no one knows exactly when it will take effect. Some people aren't taking any chances and are selling now. Robert Frank is here with more. Robert? Well, Kelly, accountants and tax lawyers telling me they are all getting the same question from wealthy clients right now, which is, 
Is it too late to sell? President Biden, Democrats in the House and Senate have all proposed increasing the capital gains tax on high earners. The president wants a rate of 39.6, the House 25. But a bigger source of disagreement right now is the timing, and that has created mass confusion for tax planning. President Biden announced that his capital gains tax should be retroactive to April. That's when his plan was announced. The new House plan gives a start date of September 13th, when their plan was announced. Kevin Brady, the top Republican on Ways and Means, saying this morning on CNBC that no decision has been made. Now, tax advisors say some clients are still racing to sell assets and stock, hoping maybe for an even later start date after the bill actually passes. Others are looking at all of their sales between April and September, just trying to figure out what their tax rates might eventually be. All of this matters to the government because a tax foundation analysis found that if the capital gains tax takes effect on January 1st of next year, that gives investors a chance to sell beforehand and avoid that higher rate, revenue from a capital gains hike would be $50 billion less. So right now, it's in the government interest to make us think it's too late, but it may not be. Kelly? And all of this would ensnare crypto too, Robert? Yes, absolutely. Capital gains applies to crypto. So uh, the other thing with crypto is that they would apply the wash rule to crypto. So it makes it kind of harder if this passes to buy back your crypto immediately after selling, which is what they can do now. So if you're a crypto holder and you're betting on a later start date, you probably also want to sell now. Very, very interesting. And I, I guess, Robert, you would imagine that, you know, like you said, people aren't going to wait uh, for this to be finalized either way. That if We're looking at the market. That that's where some selling could be coming from. Yeah, we were told in April it was too late. Well, guess what? It turned out not to be. We're told by strategists it's only 25 percent of the market. Well, guess what? That's 10 trillion dollars of accounts. So this does matter. And we could see some selling pressure right now as part of it. All right, Robert. Thank you, Robert Frank. Before we go, I want to show you shares of U.S. Steel, the company announcing today it plans to build a new steel mill steel mill in the U.S. starting next year. U.S. Steel says the new mill will bo- uh, boost its sheet steel production capacity by about 20 percent. They expect to begin construction on the new mill during the first half of next year with the goal of starting production in 2024. Steel prices have soared this ne- year to nearly $2,000 a ton up from less than $500 last summer. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.